Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done that. Being hired by a company called Carolco Pictures. And that. the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. My experience with Orson Welles. Barbara How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. In this episode, Stanley Kubrick calls Roger for advice? I'm not kidding. Critic Pauline Kael likes movies that, quote, hit her in the crotch, and Warren Beatty is a control freak. All right, maybe you knew that, but there are a few new wrinkles. We begin with one of the stars of Barry Lyndon, or is it Napoleon? We'll explain. But she's very young when Roger meets her, Marissa Berenson. And now we get to Marissa Berenson, Giancarlo Giannini, and Dion von Furstenberg as a three-horse parlay. Wow. I had met Marissa for the first time when she was 17 and I was 21, and my classmate at Harvard, a man who became, was my friend till his sad death about 10 years ago, Lorenzo Weissman, who was her, her cousin. Lorenzo was from, I think, Guatemala, some South Central American country, but was her, her and cousin. And Marissa, we could call a, a little bit more sophisticated, but kind of a Paris Hilton of the time. She was an I would, I would and... call her. I would call her the if you can't get Audrey Hepburn, you get her. Okay. I think that's a little fair. A little she fair. was in Barry Lyndon, which you mentioned she, yes, Kubrick yeah, in yes, an earlier yeah, podcast. Yeah. And so she had, you know, she, some, right. done some things. Well, when I met her, she was in her last year of prep school and she was 17. Wow. And Lorenzo says to me, look, my cousin is coming in for the weekend and I got to take Shepard her and I am busy. Could you take her out Saturday night? Doesn't say... She's the most gorgeous drop-dead woman you have ever laid your eyes on. He doesn't do that. He's very Regular very listeners low key. to this podcast will agree with me that this seems to be a recurring theme in the life of Roger Smith. Right. He is entrusted in the company of beautiful women to take either to the Oscars or right. way back when he was almost still a kid, Marissa Berenson for the weekend. Exactly. I was a, I was 21. And so I, we went on a, a blind date and I took her to a party at the Hasty Pudding at which... Guys had their tongues hanging out, and the women were saying, 
Well, I don't think she's that pretty. <laughs> but we now re-encounter each other at the memorable first screening of Barry Lyndon, which was a Warner film. Wait, anything happened on that weekend besides you went to a, a Harvard well, I'd Hasty like, Pudding? I'd like, I'd like to say that I'm a gentleman and gentlemen don't tell, but that would imply there's something I'm keeping secret. Okay. And their answer was, I think I got a very slight kiss on the cheek. Good night, okay? She was 17 years old. I mean, she was a kid. You know, she's somebody who would be of great interest to uh, uh, what's his name, Epstein, uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, okay. yes. I'm glad I for, I'm glad I forgot his first name. I mean, um, and and Lorenzo was a very interesting person. He was the only. I think it's safe to say that you know Hollywood loves hyphenates: director, producer, writer, director. He was a hyphenate. He was a mime and an investment banker. <laughs> <laughs> he did, he was a mime on the streets of Paris earlier. He took your money and told no one. Yeah, right. And, and, and busking for a living and then went on to a distinguished career at Dylan Reed. Uh, but at, with the last name Weissmuller, I have to ask Weissman. if he was, he was not related to Johnny Weissmuller. No, Weissman. Oh, Weissman. Weissman. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. And not, right, right. And not Joseph Weisman, the director. No. Okay. No. And not wonder, that and Roger one. Smith. Not that Roger Smith, right. But uh, anyway, we... I reminded her of our, when I saw her at the screening of our date, and this was, she was incredibly nervous because no one in the cast had seen the movie. This was a year after they'd done the shooting of it, and all Kubrick. Now, what's this? Oh, it was Barry, for Barry, Barry Lyndon. Lyndon for oh, Barry sorry. Lyndon. Okay, yeah, good. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, she was amused to see that I was now in the film business. And Did you get another kiss on the cheek? At least for hello? I think I got that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but and then, not. did she like the film? She's pretty good in it. She's she's wonderful in it. And when Kubrick was criticized for casting Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson, who have never seen the inside of the actor's studio, uh, they're not actor actors. They're and and Kubrick said, "I don't want actors for the leads. I want types. She's a type." He's a type. He then surrounded them with some of the greatest actors, living actors in the English theater, uh, Leonard Rossiter and lots of, lots of wonderful people in secondary roles. Right. And that was his style. And it's been suggested, and he, Ryan would not like this, but that he was in over his head in that role, and that was exactly what Kubrick wanted. Yes. A he, kid who was running around not knowing what he was doing because that's what well, Barry at, Lyndon was. At the risk of repetition, because I think I may have told you the Kubrick Napoleon story, Maybe I didn't. Okay. John Calley, who was the link of Kubrick to Warner, told me that after the success of Clockwork Orange, which was made on a peanut budget and was a huge success, partly because it initially got an X rating, right. then it got lowered to an R, but it was uh, that was part of the notoriety, but it was a great movie. He now tells John that his next picture he wants to make is be the life of Napoleon. John says, oh, Stanley, Napoleon, Rod Steiger played him and Marlon Brando played him. It's been done and done to death. You think, you think audiences today will care about Napoleon? And Kubrick argued for a long time. I mean, with Kubrick a long time is like six months. It's not, it's not three phone calls. And six months later, he sends him this book, a minor William Thackeray novella called Barry Lyndon. 
And John sees the tremendous potential of this swashbuckling, big canvas, Napoleonic wars, a young man who rises from obscurity to the heights of society, etc., and thinks, fantastic, I love it. A picture comes out, and it is both a major money loser for Warner Brothers and probably one of the most important films that the studio made in the last 25 years of the 20th century. But on its release, not beloved. No, savaged by the critics. And it got, many of the reviews got the single worst word any movie review can get. Boring. Yeah. When yeah, you hear I boring, you lose everybody. And in fact, as a result of Kubrick having been told that at the screening, when it was announced at the end of the screening, would everybody here except the Warner executives uh, leave? We need to have a, a brief meeting. And one of my executives, a good friend to, till his death, Jay Emmett, gets up and says, closes the door very conspiratorially and says, all right, as far as anyone is concerned, we have a hit here. No one is to know about what this movie really is. I, the youngest and least uh, high-ranking person in the room, say, I don't know, Jay. I don't know how it's going to do commercially, but I have a feeling this may well be the only picture that we make in 10 years that anyone will ever remember. It's an incredible, incredible movie. Everyone goes, oh, Jesus, who invited him? You know, it's like, who the yeah, fuck is Roger Smith? Smith right? <laughs> so word gets back to Stanley the next day, two days later, I think. My secretary buzzes me and says, Stanley Kubrick on the line for you. I said, oh, it's one of my friends who I've told him how great. I said, they're having a little fun. I pick up and I said, hi, Stanley. He says, yeah, it's Stanley Kubrick. I said, oh my, yeah. He said, I hear you like my picture. I said, no, I loved your picture. I said, I need to see it again. I ended up seeing it maybe 10 times because it's obviously very, very complex, but it's more than beautiful. It's, it's fascinating, I think. And he said, well, tell me, your marketing people tell me we've got a marketing problem. How would you sell the film? I said, well, Mr. Kubrick, I'm in finance and I don't have this as, I've been at Warner one year at this point. I don't think I have this kind of expertise, but as always, I was ready. Please with tell me the marketing guys found out you talked to Kubrick and they threatened to lynch you. No, 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 it, 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 because my connection to Kubrick was through his right hand at Warner in London was a lovely guy, Julian Sr., who ended up leaving Warner to work full time for Stanley. And so he said, this guy's okay. And I said, I'll tell you, you're going to get some great reviews and you're going to get some pans. Why don't we go with a campaign that shows both? Put a line down the middle of the page. Some people say this, some people say that. See it for yourself and decide what you think. He said, well, that's a brave idea. I said, I'm not sure that people are going to go with that. You know, he didn't want to put down the, put the pans in. I so, so, but it was, it established, it established my friendship actually with his right hand, Julian Sr., because he remembered this. In fact, Kubrick was such a control freak that the picture was opening in 16 cities, as I remember, and he had a representative in every city going to the theater, 
checking the number of foot Lamberts coming off the screen, and wow. et cetera, and making sure that if a print had a slight scratch and that it was pulled, he just was maniacal about the quality and understandably so. Anyway, after the picture has been around the world, it was a hit in France and nowhere else. Hmm. The French have great taste. <laughs> well, they like Jerry Lewis, so I take that back. But um, in any case, um, Stanley calls John Kelly about six months after the pictures made it through distribution, unsuccessfully mostly, and he says, well, how'd you like my movie about Napoleon? He said, what? <laughs> I told you we, we weren't going to make Napoleon. He said, no, no. I made a movie called Barry Lyndon. It's about a man who's born on an island off the main part of the country into very modest circumstances, who ends up through his military exploits rising to the pinnacle of society and then ends up completely losing out and, and collapsing and going into exile with his mother. It's Napoleon. <laughs> Click, <laughs> click. Right. And uh, <laughs> I recently retold this story in a letter to the editor of the New York Review of Books when they gave an approving review to a recent biography of, of Kubrick, which did not have this little nugget of information, which I said I can, I can give you this on not quite first-hand authority, first-and-a-half-hand authority. Well, Smith, you get the last laugh because after his passing, Barry Lyndon is now considered one of his great films. Yes, yeah. And so you saw it and a bunch of other execs didn't. Well, it gave rise to an opinion at the studio that show a movie to Roger. If he likes it, we can cut back on the print and advertising expense because it's going to be a bomb. That, so that was, that was my, my, I was known for my lack of commercial taste. And anyway, your now, incredible humility. We're talking about what a control freak Stanley Kubrick was. And I'm reminded of the time that Warren Beatty went to see Bonnie and Clyde in London, and he didn't understand why when the bullets were being fired, they didn't sound loud enough. He had cut the film against all other uh, advice, including the directors, I think, that uh, when the guns went off, he wanted them loud, like bang, 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 bang. And he went running up to one of the famous theaters and knocked on the projectionist door in the middle of the movie, and the projectionist, and he explains that it doesn't sound loud enough. You got to turn up the volume. He goes, "Oh no, I, I, I have a chart." And he showed the chart to to Beatty, and he said, "This is when the bullets happened. And they, you, you mixed it way too loud. We got it way too loud." It, it was, and he, he so I'm he pulling had taken it down. on himself. I'm too. manually pulling the volume down, and, and Beatty goes, "No!" Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that that film, Bonnie and Clyde, was a groundbreaking film in many, many ways. Much of the credit for it goes to Bob Paul, Ben. Bob well, ben. I was going to say Pauline Kael, but... Well, Pauline Kael for making it the hit that it right, was. the critic uh, who... Critic. Because Warner did, had no idea what they had. It opened, and I can remember this because I lived on the West the Hell's Kitchen at the time. It opened at a, a shabby theater at 49th and Broadway with no ballyhooing, Bonnie and Clyde. There and was, maybe, maybe, if you remember, it was like a double feature? No, no, no? it wasn't. Okay. It, was, it was a step above that, but... Critics, Pauline Kale, as you mentioned, other critics and the audience made it. And it was, you know, it deservedly became a iconic film of that era. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that the uh, marketing for it included in a double truck New York Times arts section, 
the complete Pauline Kale review, review yes, yes. reprinted, reprinted, yeah, like word for blah, 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 acknowledge that it came from another well, publication. This was one of the cases where Pauline Kale, I think, she liked movies that hit her in the crotch. <laughs> she liked movies that were sexy, and uh, there were a number of cases, other ones that she raved about, where it was uh, uh, very often with an extremely handsome male lead. Uh, I don't wish to cast any aspersions. That's perfectly fine. I like, I like movies with pretty women. So anyway, going back to Marissa, we now re-encounter, I re-encounter after the Barry Lyndon screening at a fancy dinner given in the late 70s by the late Susan Stein, daughter of Jules Stein, and her then hus her husband, Gil Shiva, uh, an Israeli uh, film producer who they lived in a fabulous Dakota apartment. Gil was producing the new Lena Vertmuller film called A Night Full of Rain, starring Candace Bergen and Giancarlo Giannini. Wow. Also at the dinner was Giannini, who had become world famous after a starring role in Lena Vertmuller's Swept Away, which was the thing that launched his career. Giancarlo was putting the moves on Marissa, and she came over to me and said, look, he wants to go out afterwards, and I don't want to say absolutely no, but I, I need you to come with me and keep him under control. I said, well, that's what you want. I'll be happy to play that role. It's not my preferred role, but I'll do it. So she asked, she asked me where the three of us might go to dance after dinner, and I told her I'd heard about but hadn't been to a gigantic gay discotheque on the East Village in one of those giant industrial spaces, six stories tall, and it was considered the, the hot in space for um, a mixed crowd, not just gays. Not Webster Hall. Not... No, no, okay. no. That was far too respectable. This okay. was this was this was more for leather and, and chains Got and it. things like that. I get to the entrance and they say I say there's three of us who'd like to get they say, Oh, we're sorry. It's members only. I said, excuse me, can I talk to this? I get somebody who seems in charge. I said, You're running this rather shabby gay discotheque and you're going to turn away Marissa Berenson and John Carlo Giannini? Are you crazy? They said, no, I guess you're right. So we went in and, and people made a big fuss over both of them and, we, and they danced and they had a great time. Now comes time to leave and I'm starting to say goodbye and Marissa says, no, no, no. You've got to get rid of John Carlo. He's going to keep, keep at it. Until, you know. I said, and I don't Oh, that's my job. She said, please, we're going to go. She was staying with Dion von Furstenberg in her then fancy uh, Park Avenue apartment. And we go back there and Dion was there to greet us. But it was now two in the morning and she was said, I'm going to go to bed. You, you could stay up as much as you want. And John Carlos shoots me looks that says, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I know what he wants. I also know that Marissa says, you cannot leave me alone with him. I said, you sure? I'm sure you could handle this. He said, no, don't leave me alone. You, you, this is a cliffhanger. You, 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 you got to stay till he goes. Finally, at four in the morning, I get him out of there. We get in a cab. I drop him back at his hotel, the Pierre, as I remember. And... Uh, to say he is glowering at me is putting it mildly. He's There's no things. conversation at all? No, not just... a word, not a word. Good night. Uh, right. And, and um, he felt that I had ruined his chance for a fabulous romantic evening. But I, didn't, I, I was too polite to say, 
wasn't my idea to ruin it. It was Marissa's, but okay, that was fine. And again, just a kiss on the cheek. Not even that. Right, exactly. Well, in this case, at least Giancarlo came off with nothing too. It wasn't only me. <laughs> you mentioned somebody else that I was going to just do quick a quick take on. Oh. Beatty? Beatty, yes, Beatty. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I first met Warren Beatty in 1977 through David Geffen, who he had hired to star in a movie he called Heaven Can Wait. It was a remake of a 1930s film. Here that, Comes Mr. Jordan. Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Thank you. I couldn't come up with that name. And Mr. Here Comes Mr. Jordan, David had asked me to actually see in a screening room and when he was thinking of remaking it, asked my opinion. And uh, one of the things I liked about David Geffen was he actually asked my opinion about movies. And I said, David, it can never work in today's world. You got, wow. you got you got angels in physical representation. You got the devil. You got heaven and, and pearly gates. I mean, uh, modern audiences will just laugh. So he retitled it "Heaven Can Wait," which had been the name of a totally different Ernst Lubitsch movie, and it grossed, I think, around two hundred million worldwide and got a lot of Oscars. So. Um, well, it had a lot of help. Besides Warren and Julie Christie, it was uh, authored uh, by uh, Buck Henry. Buck Henry, yeah, right. And I uh, think Elaine May came in and did some punch up on it. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, the basic nature of it, someone coming down from heaven, stayed there. Yeah. And But James Mason, I mean, it yeah. got amped up from what you saw in the... Oh, yeah, yeah. the thing I saw was, a, was, a, Jordan. was a medium a medium budget black and white film from the early 40s, yeah. The last 10 minutes of that movie with Julie Christie and Warren Beatty in that hall, and it happens to be the L.A. Rams, right. uh, <laughs> just funny enough, yes. uh, is magic. When yeah. the lights go out and she's not sure this is really the guy she, he's saying he is. And I just think, uh, I, I think they made a really good they, movie they, out they, of a really pretty good movie to start with. But you're right, with a yeah. lot of tired, hokey stuff going on. They get even more credit for pulling off something that... that under normal circumstances might not have worked. And uh, my, my view was a bit too pedestrian. I didn't see the potential of Warren directing and, and uh, uh, brilliant script and, and fam fabulous acting. I mean, there were a couple of other secondary roles that were also perfectly cast. Do you know the story since you're Mr. Rumor Control about the poster for that, that his his package wasn't large enough? He's, he, no. <laughs> he, it's Warren Beatty in a in a uh, jogging Not suit. his financial package. No. It's, <laughs> it's, this is um, the other package. Yeah, he's in, a, he's in an athletic gear. He was yeah, in yeah. a jogging suit, suit right. gray, and, yeah. and he had wings on, right. and he kept saying, uh, bigger, bigger, bigger bump, bigger bump, allegedly. Right. Uh, yeah. for the, not for the wings. No, not, no, for, no, the not wings. for the wings. Okay. Now, you talked about control freaks. Did you ever have to deal with Warren Beatty? Well, I'll tell you, um, a couple little, little, little glancing in, inter, interactions that I find revealing. I was very friendly with the head of, and this is now the late 70s, early 80s, with the head of New York City's, uh, of Warner Brothers New York City office, which was basically a literary agency to find properties from publishing world magazines, books, et cetera, and send them out to California as potential movies. It was run by a very smart, very attractive woman named Susan Brody. And Susan, whom I had a flingette with, um, <laughs> but she told me that 
every time Warren Beatty was in New York, he would call and take her to dinner. And I said, Susan, admit it. You want to sleep with him. Go ahead and do it. Why not? It would be exciting, I'm sure. He said, if I slept with him, there'd be no more dinner invitations. <laughs> and I think she, she knew her man. Now it's eight or nine years later, and I'm an executive at Carolco Pictures. And for some reason, I don't recall what I was told. Oh, Warren Beatty is, is uh, over at the, he had a, at that point a penthouse that he lived in on top of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Yeah. And there's a script, we need to get to him. Would you ask your secretary to take it hand? I don't want to use a messenger for Warren. We want her to hand deliver it. I called Anita and I said, Anita, I have a very pleasant assignment for you. And she leaves, I said, you know, and 45 minutes later, I see her. I said, how did you get back so quickly? She said, oh, I haven't left yet. I'm still printing. She had been, she wanted to look her best for Warren Beatty. And I said, well, I have to take to tell you this, but chances are very slim that you'll actually meet Mr. Beatty. You'll probably see one of his people. And you never saw her again. And she went and she went over and then she did come back after another hour or so. And I said, well, what happened? I gave him the script. I said, it's from Carol Co. Pictures, Roger Smith, etc. And he looked at me and said, are you into star fucking? She said, yes. Do you know any stars I could fuck? I said, Anita, I'd like to believe you said that, but I don't. I just think that that is too perfect if you really said it. And besides, you did take another 45 minutes to come back here. <laughs> so whatever happened, I don't know. But I know that that's what she claimed she said. And How about that for a pickup line? Yeah. I mean, you could never get away with that today. Are uh, you into star you know what? fucking? Warren Beatty could get away with it. <laughs> yeah. if, the way he looked then. I now have my final encounter with Warren Beatty when he's now happily married to Annette Benning, and I'm now the recent father of my adored Daisy, who was about three years old, and I'm having drinks at the, at the, in the bar at the Carlisle, not the cafe, but the little vestibule. Bellman's. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Warren is there with Annette Benning and his three children. And I don't know what was the reason we, we talked that it was some, for some reason I said, look, I'm just, I was 60 years old when I had my first child and it's just been the greatest thing I've ever done in my life and just wished I'd done it sooner. And he said, so have more. He said, you think one is fun? Let me tell you how much fun three are. It's even, it's even better. I said, well, uh, my wife is now 51. She was 48 when she became pregnant. I think we're, we were pushing the envelope at that point. I don't think it would work. But he was so charming. He seemed genuinely concerned that I become a father of, of at least two more children. <laughs> the planned parenthood of Warren Beatty. Right, yes. <laughs> And I gather that, you know, Annette laid down the law when they got married and that he has utterly and completely followed it. I think that's true. It yeah. seems unbelievable, but I think you're right. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the Fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy.
Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid.